Yes, we're back. Yes, thank yes. you very much. I can't hear you. Are you, are you there? Yes, just about, Richard. Yes. A bit groggy this morning. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. I'm, well, actually, I've got a bit of a cold, which is why I've got a slightly deep voice this week. Okay. Right. So, but we are back, and it's very it's, good to be back. It is indeed. The movie hour. Yes, indeed. Looking at the very best of what's going on at the moment. Yes, starting with one of the very worst. No, it's yes. quite all right. There are some cracking local films to tell you about. Shall, well, shall, we, uh, shall we do that? I think we should dive straight in with right. that. Good Not a lot on at the Playhouse this week until next Friday, and then two brilliant, well, one brilliant film, and you know, take your view on the other one. In the afternoon at two o'clock, it's going to be Jane Eyre. Which I really like. I think that Carrie Fukunara has done an interesting take on uh, no, what is traditionally regarded as a rather romping, ripe gothic novel. He's pared it right down. Mia Wasikowska's very good. We'll come on to Jane Eyre again when we talk about Wuthering Heights. Yeah. And then at 7.30, Dirty Dancing. I, I don't mind Dirty Dancing, actually. I mean, it, it's cheesy as sin, and no, I've never entirely seen the appeal of Patrick Swayze, but if it's sort of leave your brain at the door stuff, and as that, it's fine. <laughs> no, like I say, it's not it's terrible. I mean, it's better than Xanadu, but then, frankly, <laughs> everything is vomiting is better than Xanadu, frankly. <laughs> Anik Playhouse number is Anik510785 <laughs> if you want tickets for that one. And let me just remind you, of course, that the Friends of the Playhouse got, have got their variety show uh, tonight. A wonderful night of comedy, music, song and dance featuring the very best of local talents, and there's pictures of it in this week's Northumberland Gazette, including my mate Colin Heathcote. Dread to think what he's going to do on the stage. I hope it's not dancing. <laughs> if you've ever seen Colin hobbling around. Yeah, I, I was in a play with Colin, oh, so long as he's not doing a Scottish accent, that's all I'm worried about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he wasn't that good at Scottish, was he? He does comedy well, though. Yeah, he does. Yes. He's a good guy. Meanwhile, up at the Mortings in Berwick, quite a few films, uh, some of which I've heard of, some of which I haven't. One I have heard of is this afternoon and tomorrow afternoon at 2.30, Arietti. Yeah, which is the uh, the adaptation of the Mary Norton book from uh, Studio Ghibli. Miyazaki's involved in the Miyazaki's involved in the screenplay. I think it's it's not up there with things like Spirited Away, but it's genuinely charming and you no, know, they've done a very good job adapting the book. Right. Eight thirty tonight is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. No, which is held up as you no know, Matthew Broderick's finest performance and in many ways John Hughes's best film. I really like it. I think that Matthew Broderick is actually at his best in Lady Hawk, which we'll talk about in the new year because that's a good sort of light-hearted one to kick yeah. us off in twenty twelve. Yeah, it's very good, and if you haven't seen it, you should because it is an iconic eighties work. Right. And then all over the place tonight at six and nine, tomorrow at seven, Tuesday at one and six, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is still one of the best films of the year. I think that Thomas. Alfredson has done a fantastic job of um, adapting the John le Carre book. I, I still have a couple of quibbles about certain sections in which the TV series gets more time to work everything out, but it's a deeply atmospheric film. It's you know, a film about spying in which you... It's about the characters rather than just about the various plot shenanigans that's going on. It does fulfil on the promise of Let the Right One In. It, I don't think it's quite the best film of the year because that's we need to talk about Kevin, but if you haven't seen Tinker Taylor, go and see it right now. Right. And well, once you finish listening to us, then you can go see it. Yes. And tomorrow morning, get up early for this one, 10.30, only £2.50 to get in if you book in advance, and under twos are free, which is Pinocchio. This is the original Disney version, I yes, take it, it rather, is. rather than the uh, the slightly misjudged uh, Roberto Benigni version from the nineties, which is really not very no, good. The original, brilliant. Yeah, the original Disney is version. fantastic, and it's uh, you know people often think of sort of old fashioned Disney as being sort of charming and sweet and so forth, but Pinocchio has got some really dark and creepy stuff in it. And you know, remember the you know Pleasure Island where everyone gets turned into donkeys. It's a fantastic film, and of course, if you're a Terry Gilliam fan, 
without Pinocchio, he would not be a filmmaker because that's the thing that got him into films. Indeed. And then Monday, half price Monday, Columbiana. Yeah, which is, you know, Luc Besson produced. I think he was actually, he was co-directing this one, though. Meat-headed, not very good, very loud, and it's in one ear and out the other. Right, so the Mortings box office is 01289 330999. I think overall some cracking local films coming yeah, up Yeah, by and week. large, that's a pretty good mix. Yeah, so shall we have a look at the top ten? Yeah, let's canter through it. Some of which I uh, can't remember from three weeks ago, but anyway. Number ten, Machine Gun Preacher. Which is being billed as Gerard Butler's move into serious work. It's based on on the true story of Sam Childers, who I uh, know was a, a sort of gun-toting southerner who then went out to Africa, had a, you know, became a Christian and helped with sort of missionary work. And normally, whenever you get something, where, you know, whenever the Catholic Church comes out and says something is morally offensive, you know it's got to be a good thing, because they don't really have their head screwed on when it comes to films. Now, this is the same organisation who thought the Da Vinci Code was blasphemous, like, yeah. it's just a story. Yes. Quite apart from the fact that it's colossally dull. So, the problem is that all the interesting stuff in the film about soul-searching and putting your always behind you gets lost in the increasingly random and stupid action it's not awful but it's just a bit plodding and ordinary right not very uh, well received by the critics no i mean gerald butler has been off the boil for ages and ages i mean the best thing he's done is still 300 in which he's essentially being paid to cover himself in oil and run around with his shirt off and that's what he does best uh, the Lion King in 3D is at number nine. It's just a cynical marketing exercise. If you go and see it in 2D, it's brighter and a billion times more involving. Right. I, because uh, you have to spend something to fill the hours uh, when you're in airport lounges, was reading um, a lads, well, yeah, dignified lads mag. Right. And there was a film critic in there who said there was one decent 3D film made back in the 1950s and every other one since then has been complete rubbish. Was he talking about Darlene for Murder? By uh, I think it probably was. Yes. yes. And that, because that's the Alfred Hitchcock 3D film which even he wasn't all that pleased about. So. Right. Anyway. But he reckons every one since then has been complete rubbish. Yeah, I mean the classic 3D film of course is House of Wax with Vincent Price. The famous anecdote about which is that was filmed by a guy with who called Andre de Toff who only had one eye so he couldn't even see it. 3D. <laughs> Great, isn't it? It's <laughs> lovely. Number eight is The Ides of March. Which is a pretty decent, workable political thriller. I don't think George Clooney is as brilliant a director as a lot of people say. I mean, did you remember Good Night and Good Luck? Which yes. was his film about the McCarthy era. Yes, that was good. Well, it was all right. I mean, I, I was never sold on the whole integration of the real footage. I thought that it was a bit lecturing in places yeah. like Oliver Stone's work but I know I've, I've said enough about Oliver Stone so I don't think this breaks any new ground but as a thinking man's popcorn thriller it does its job and I do think Ryan Gosling is turning into a very accomplished actor. On to number seven and Contagion. Which is pretty good it's one of Steven Soderbergh's better films which owes a, a, a great debt to things like The Crazies or Terry Gilliam's Twelve Monkeys to mention him for the second time today I still think Soderbergh makes films a bit too quickly for his own good but it is gripping and pretty compelling And is it believable? By and large, yes. I mean, if you if you buy into the conceit of the crazies, a sort of towns for turning on each other about a virus that may actually not exist, then I think Contagion works. Okay, number six is the help. Um, Tamsin Robson of this parish uh, went to see this when she was on a, a plane, and she said she found it entertaining, but um, she says she came out of it feeling ashamed to be white, which I think tells you pretty much what you need to know. It is because you know the story is loosely speaking you have a group of sort of um white uh, writers living in sort of jackson mississippi area in the 1950s and you know the sort of black helps in the house sort of doing their laundry and so forth and one of them decides to write a book from the helps point of view yeah and it gets the black community involved and then have friends turn on her and so forth so it is 
manipulative and it wears its heart very much on its sleeve and it no it's it's a bit too sort of glossy for its own good but emma stone and viola davis do give good performances so on a likability factor it just about gets away with it well, the definitive film of that genre for me will always be to kill a mockingbird yes absolutely and uh, uh, book brilliant film even better yeah and gregory peck's finest hour right number five we've got uh the paranormal Paranormal Activity 3, which it doesn't bode well. No, it's not as snore-inducing as the second one, but not all the originality that was in Oren Pelle's original film, which wasn't that brilliant, it's been milked to death by now and they should stop. Number four, and why is it still there? Johnny English Reborn. Well, the answer to that is that it's taking money outside of Britain. I mean, generally, by and large, we seem to be in the minority in terms of yeah. audience. It is, you know, it's all of the jokes that, you know, taking the piss out of the Bond series that were done better in Austin Powers, and by the time you got to Goldmember, they were already running out of steam. So, you no, know, Rowan Atkinson's talented, but just, he needs to choose Wasted. his project more carefully yeah. in future. Tower Heist, number three. Brett Ratner's best film. Not that that's saying much, because he's a bit of a hack. Um, it riffs on a whole bunch of better films. I mean, if you've seen the trailer, where Eddie Murphy makes his entrance by coming out of prison. It's exactly the same as his entrance in Trading Places, where he gets picked up by uh, the Dukes, you know, Winthorpe yeah. and Valentine. <laughs> and the Trading Places is a great film. It's reasonably funny, and again, Matthew Broderick's all right, but it is utterly disposable. Number two, In Time. Um, good premise, poor execution. I mean, the director Andrew Nichol has formed because he directed Gattaca back in the 90s and he was one of the co-writers on The Truman Show, so I like him already. Um, and there are nice sort of little touches in the execution, sort of people having uh, the amount of time they've got left to live on their hands and a coffee, um, cup of coffee costing four hours and the fact that nobody can age it over 25, which sort of links back to Logan's Run, and I think yeah. there was one review which said it's essentially Logan's Run with credit cards, <laughs> which is, you know, which is all right. Nice way of putting it. Yeah, but the problem with the film is that it wears its heart again on its sleeve. All of the stuff is is surface, and when it yeah. starts to gather momentum, it doesn't have the depth it needs to actually make it a proper thinking science fiction film. So as a half-hour Twilight Zone episode, great, but not as a two-hour film. And then interestingly, number one, The Adventures of Tintin. Yeah, I went to see this a couple of weeks ago in 2D, and the verdict of both me and my sister is it's pretty good fun. Um, the story is a bit stodgy. I mean, they've combined Secret of the Unicorn, Red Rackham's Treasure, and The Crab with the Golden Claws, and they haven't done a, an entirely seamless job. I mean, one of the complaints I have is that one of my favourite characters, Professor Calculus, is is not in the story at all, and he was always one of the yeah. funniest things about the books. The fact that he would mishear absolutely everything Captain Haddock said right up to the moment where he said the word goat, and then he'd suddenly get offended. <laughs> I mean, those and so. So from sort of a fan's point of view, they've missed a couple of tricks, but the motion capture in the film, because it's done in sort of 3D motion capture and then sort of CG animated on top, I think that's the, it's the best I've seen. I mean, it doesn't have that sort of off-putting eerie quality that the Robert Zemeckis motion capture did where, you know, it's, it's known as dead eye syndrome. Uh, and the set pieces are pretty spectacular, so it's not Spielberg at his best because it essentially yeah. is a load of bits that sort of fit together and the plot is a bit stodgy, but for sort of, no, if I'd been sort of 9, 10, 11 years old, I think I would have really enjoyed it. So it's good fun. So very few turkeys in the top 10 this week, then. It's not bad. I mean, Tintin is obviously a recommendation. Um, Contagion and The Ides of March will probably be the other best bets, and the ones to avoid, well, um, yeah, yeah. go back and listen. <laughs> Make your own opinions. Yes, exactly. Right. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. On to our cult film now. One that the conspiracy theorists would say is entirely based on fact. <laughs> because of the story, did they ever go to the moon or not? Exactly. Uh, Capricorn One, 1978 uh, American conspiracy thriller, directed by Peter Hyams, who is a, a sort of nuts and bolts jobbing director. I mean, 
apart from this, he did things like um, 2010, the year we made Contact, which was the sort of slightly ropey sequel to 2001. Yeah. Obviously, it wasn't as good as the original. He did Narrow Margin, which is the sort of a loose remake of the 1952 film noir of the same name, with a pretty good performance by Gene Hackman. Um, he did Time Cop, which is sort of held up as a cult film by some fans. It's a sort of Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle, and it's a bit of a guilty pleasure, and I'm not the biggest fan of it. At his lowest point, he did a film called End of Days in the late 90s, which is a sort of supernatural action thriller in which, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger goes hunting for the devil with a grenade launcher, and the devil's played by Gabriel Byrne. Now, essentially, you take the omen, you, and instead of ideas, you have lots of explosions, and it's incredibly boring. Um, Hyams got the idea for this um, when he was working for CBS during the later Apollo missions, and he was part of the crew in charge of televising sort of you know, the second the final moon landing in uh, 72, I think, something like that, Apollo 17. Uh, he worked on the script with producer Paul Lazarus, who produced uh, Future World, the sequel to Westworld, which came out in sort of 75, 76, something like that. And they used his relationship with um, NASA on that project to get the props. So even though the film portrays the space industry in a predominantly negative light, they were able to get you know, realistic replicas of the space shuttle, well, not the space shuttle, that was a bit later, of uh, the lunar module yeah. and so forth. Um, it was originally going to be made in the mid-70s, but it got into jeopardy after Peter Himes' film Peeper completely flopped. And the only reason it got made was that Lou Grade saw a test reel that they'd made with the footage and said, here's five million quid, go off and do it, sounds interesting. I mean, a classic example of Lou Grade sort of picking projects at random that he had a, an affection for and just, you know, bunging a load of cash. I mean, that's... He is such a great spirit over the television industry. Exactly. Though, I, mean, that, I mean, Thunderbirds probably wouldn't have made if he didn't sort of like Jerry Anderson as a person and said, yeah, here's a man, it goes make 13 and... Uh, yeah. yeah, we'll circulate them. Um, it was originally going to be released in February 1978, but this got pushed back to June, and they were sort of dithering because of all the delays on Superman the movie, because they didn't want it to clash. And when Superman got delayed further and only got released at Christmas, they thought, well, let's put it in the summer and yeah. get, our, get our quids in early. It did take money first time around, but not a massive amount. Um, it's held up on one source as one of the more one of the most independent successful independent films of all time which is actually quite erroneous considering this was the same year of halloween so i'm not sure they can measure it on those sorts of grounds considering how much halloween took so the plot is it's set in well what was then the present day in the mid 70s or late 70s rather uh, when the usa are launching the first manned mission to mars and we follow three astronauts uh, colonel charles brubaker played by james brolin who was in westworld uh, colonel peter willis played by sam waterston who was later play the journalist in The Killing Fields, uh, which we'll come on to a little bit later because of its connection with Bruce Robinson, and Commander John Walker, played by O.J. Simpson about ten years before he turned up in the Naked Gun series. Um, just before the launch of the rocket, which is called Capricorn One, the astronauts are taken out of the ship by corrupt national official Dr. James Kellaway, played by Hal Holbrook, whom we talked about a few weeks ago because he turns up in the fog quite yeah. prominently, and he takes them to one side into a room and says that the whole mission is being faked to re-engage the public with the space race and they're taken onto a film set in the desert and onto film the Martian landings. Oh, everything's going fine and sort of the astronauts are sort of going along with the idea right up to the moment where the, the rocket burns up on re-entry and everybody thinks the astronauts are dead. So mm. what are we going to do about that? Yes. And now you were saying you saw this the first time round. Do you have any recollection of what you thought about it? Um, I think it was probably before the great conspiracy theory about 
the Apollo mission broke out, because had I seen that, I would have been deeply cynical about the film, um, because I would have gone for, you know, I'm one of those who thinks it's the most far-fetched conspiracy theory I've ever come across in my life, mm -hmm. and I've seen some extremely far-fetched ones. So at that point, I could take it as a bit of a sort of science fiction type, adventure type thing, and it, it was good fun. You didn't take it too seriously. Uh, as I say, had had the uh, Apollo conspiracy theories been around much before that, or had I listened to them, uh, I would have probably gone and think this is a load of rubbish. But okay, uh, um, it depends the context, doesn't it? Of course, yeah. you'll have seen it much later on when you know, you'll have heard all the conspiracy theories. So you may have come at it from a different angle. But slightly. I mean, one of the things you said is absolutely spot on, which is if you don't take it too seriously, it sort of makes sense. In the same way as the fog, if you don't take that seriously, it yeah. sort of makes sense. But we'll come back to that. So. The, the 70s were the golden age of the conspiracy thriller. I mean, you, you had a very ripe atmosphere of Cold War paranoia, the OPEC crisis, the fallout from Vietnam, and of course the recent long-term fallout from Watergate. So you have this heightened public interest in the workings of government and what goes on with big corporations, which you know, is ripe for discussion. But just because conspiracy theories will always be popular to a certain extent, even if, like you say, they are completely barmy. It doesn't necessarily guarantee that the films that tap into them will necessarily yeah. live up. I mean, in the case of something like All the President's Men, which is, you no know, Alan J. Pacquiao's film with Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman about the unfolding of the Watergate scandal and Woodward and Bernstein, that still holds up after over, well, it's what, 35 years old yeah. now, something like that, and still every bit as intelligent and as visceral. A very credible base, though, wasn't Exactly. It? I mean, obviously that's all based on yeah. fact, but it's the same but it's yeah. still structured like a conspiracy thriller. This hasn't aged anything like as well. I think it's still a pretty decent film in a sort of guilty pleasure, nonsensical sort of way, but if you try and take it seriously, you don't get very far. Despite the presence up a little bit at the end with a very good ch sort of chase sequence, which, you know, again, as with the fog, it ends things on a high so long as you're not thinking too much about how things work. The interesting, there is an interesting idea at the heart of Capricorn 1, which is, now, as we set it up, in the near future, the US government would fake landing on Mars to maintain public opinion about the space program. I mean, when Holbrook takes the astronauts aside in the first ten minutes, he gives a pretty decent speech about needing to recapture the imagination of the American public who have grown cynical, oh, just another space launch. And he has a great line where he says, when Apollo 17 landed on the moon, more people rang in to complain about reruns of I Love Lucy being cancelled <laughs> than actually watched the launch. So that's a pretty desperate situation to be in, you know, regardless of your views on I Love Lucy. Um, there, this, so this is... It precedes similar discussions of that in Ron Howard's Apollo 13, which we touched on when we talked about the fog, because they're shot by the same guy. Because there's a moment in Apollo 13 before what goes wrong in Apollo 13 goes wrong. I mean, pretty much everyone knows, but we won't say it, where um, the astronauts are broadcasting, t and you know, they kind of the wheel, they wheel the wives and the family in to yeah. watch it, and then there's you know, someone says in the back, you know this isn't going out live, and it might end up on the 6 o'clock news. So, you know, three years ago, whereas everyone would have tuned in to see Neil Armstrong walk on the moon, now it's just another yeah. little news item that you bolt on the end if you have time. So that... Ron Howard's film does that more dramatically convincingly, but Capricorn 1 got there first, is what I'm trying to say. And the story is a classic conspiracy theory premise which, like I say, taps into many of the big issues in 70s culture. I mean, even though this was six, you know, five, six years after the last Apollo mission, and you know, regardless of what you were saying before, there was a feeling that the Apollo conspiracy theories were still fairly hot currency among certain people. I mean, you talked about hearing some fanciful ones. I, I don't know if you've heard this. 
The Flat Earth Society, when asked about the moon landings, claimed that they were shot on a Disney soundstage by Stanley Kubrick, with Neil Armstrong's dialogue being written by Arthur C. Clarke. And you and I would say, no, no, no just no. I mean, quite apart from the fact that it's the Flat Earth Society. Um, so that you have this, you know, the, the country is still reeling from Watergate and the back end of the Vietnam War, two events which make blaming the government for everything not only very easy but very popular. So any film that does that sort of thing is going to make money. And of course, the casting of Hal Holbrook. I mean, and if you get the actor who's played Deep Throat and you put him in a film where he's playing you know, the head of a big organisation, you instinctively think, he's up to no good, I wonder what's going on. It's like that moment in, um, recently, The Skin I Live In, the Pedro Almodovar film, in which you're introduced to Antonio Banderas playing the mad scientist, and the very first shot you see of him, he's got these massive shadows under his eyes, and you know, yeah. evil, don't go anywhere near him, <laughs> don't go near the lab. So... The first little problem with Capricorn 1 is that not only is the plot a conspiracy theorist's wet dream, but whole sections of the dialogue feels like it was written by the conspiracy theorists. I mean, there is a lot of frankly banal conversations about sort of readouts being rigged by technicians and the sort of things that, you know, if you've listened to any conspiracy theorists on television, they tend to go round and round in circles and emphasizing the same points to the yeah. point at which you think, I agree with you, but I just don't care. And... Now, as an example of this is, um, there's a performance by Robert Walden as one of the technicians who's the first person to notice that actually there's a little discrepancy in, you know, something like how much oxygen they're using or something like that. And, you know, even while we're, we're on his side, kind of listening to everything he says and saying, yes, I agree, the main thing going through our, our minds is, you know what, you look a bit like Roman Polanski. Because <laughs> he does have that sort yeah. of slightly crooked nose and the hair and so forth. I mean, so this middle section of the film, now once you've had the sort of setup with the astronauts being taken out and you're told that everything's being faked, and yeah. They've taken on the film set. The film sort of plods along. I mean, it's, it doesn't entirely drop the ball because there are individual little pockets of stuff in the film that are interesting. But in the same, but, but the problem is this: because it takes longer to get to Mars than it does to the Moon, obviously. There's a lot more time to be filled in before we get to the money shots of the end yeah. of the conspiracy being blown. And unlike Apollo 13, because you have because you've got more time, you can't just fill like an hour with news reports and yeah. technical readouts and so forth. Because you remember in Apollo 13 when it's it keeps cutting between sort of Walter Cronkite and television, and then you no know, um, Ed Harris giving orders in the room, and then the scientists yeah. trying to build. So it's always trying to fill in the time in an interesting way. Whereas Capricorn One doesn't have that option, and the central plot problem is this. Considering that there's so much time to play with in terms of, you know, from when the rocket leaves Earth to when it gets to Mars, in inverted commas, why aren't sort of the journalists played by Elliot Gould doing more to sort of follow up on all the strange events? Because at the beginning of his film, his friend goes missing, and then it seems like months before he's actually done anything about it. Yeah. So, okay, if he was your friend, how come you don't care so much about yeah, him? It's true, And yeah. what have you been doing all this time, frankly? If we compare it again to all the president's men, you kind of understand its narrative, well, not weaknesses, but shortcomings. I mean, all the president's men, like you said, it's got a very clear basis in fact, and it's got a very clear end point in the sense that you know it's going to end up with the Watergate burglary yeah. being exposed. But the reason that film works is that it keeps feeding us information very gradually so that we build up a picture of the Watergate scandal of our own accord. I'm going to use a sort of very convoluted analogy, but stay with me. If you imagine all the president's men in that sort of way of, you know, constantly feeding you information. It's like you've got a guy who's going to visit his girlfriend who lives a long way from him, but every, and he's walking there, but every time he stops on a street corner to buy her something. So you know exactly where he's going, yeah. but it 
it, the reward is greater when he gets there because it keeps kind of giving you little more bits and pieces and it's a reward at the end. Whereas Capricorn 1 is like someone blowing all his money on one massive gift at the start and then because the gift's so heavy and he's got no money left, he has to trudge along <laughs> the same route and you yeah. can say, come on, get on with it, you can walk a bit quicker than that. He still gets there and yeah. you still have the same sort of end point but the payoff isn't quite as satisfying because you know what he had right from the beginning. There are various attempts in the film made to sort of grab our attention through development in the supplementary characters. I mean, Elliot Gould, who plays um, the journalist Robert Caulfield, who's going to expose all this, he does spend most of his time wandering around sort of doing the Elliot Gould thing of looking glum and grumpy and complaining about how hard it is to be a journalist. And that's entertaining up to a point. Eventually you do want to slap him, but he's entertaining up to a point. Um, there's also sort of romantic banter between him and one of his female colleagues, played by Karen Black. And that, again, that's fleetingly interesting, doesn't really go anywhere. And there's uh, a funny section later on where um, Gould is arguing with his um, assignment editor played by David Doyle, who in another one of those you know, look-alike things is actually quite sort of freakishly similar to Bob Hope and just the way that, he's, that yeah. he speaks and so forth. And those conversations are sort of like Abbott and Costello in the sense that it's quite quick fire and sort of zingy and zing. And no, it's, it's nice, but you quickly forget about it. The, the big problem with the film from a dramatic point of view, and I, I'm not entirely bad-mouthing this, Hope, it's... It's the, got the same dramatic problem as a great many who done it, which is that because we already know the end point, whether it's who the killer is or yeah. who's behind the conspiracy, there isn't any sort of natural tension in the events involving the astronauts. There's still some pleasure in watching all the pieces play out and fit together, and there's no, apart from the time lapse, there isn't any sort of great plot yeah. point where you go, well, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. That's not happening. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock famously made a comment on the difference between mystery and suspense, the difference being that mystery is entirely intellectual, whereas suspense, you need emotional response. And if you've seen um, his courtroom drama, The Parodying Case, from the late 40s, he kind of fell into the trap of that because that's a film in which you know pretty much from the start who's done the murder. Yeah. And it spends a sort of hour and 40 minutes, you know, getting its sort of knickers in a twist about sort of trying to pan out, oh, it's not just about that, there's this bit and this bit, and they just think, no, it's, it's, it's very simple. Why don't yeah. you just cut to the chase? So the film works as a sort of sub-Columbo, sub-Agatha Christie thing, and if you try and take it more suspensefully, you, you get moments, but it's not more than that. In terms of the direction, there are, there are individual scenes which are accomplished. I mean, the Martian sequences, when they're on the film set, are quite thought out. And when we're introduced to the film set, they kind of, they're in a warehouse somewhere. I think it's in Arizona. Yeah. And they, they open the warehouse, and then you get this big rising shot to this huge set with the, with the lunar module and the red sand yeah. and the American flag, which is quite good. And um, similarly, when, when Robert Caulfield, played by Elliot Gould, stumbles on this film set, you see um, a close-up on the ground of one of the, uh, the U.S. sort of military tags that people wear around their uh, neck in the red sand, and then he's just a little pinprick in the distance, yeah. and then he gradually comes closer and picks it up, and that's quite good. And there's also a little, a nice little touch where they, um, they show the producers when they're staging the, the Martian landing, adding slow motion in deliberately to simulate the fact that their gravity is weaker, and that's quite nice. Equally, there are bits in it which are dated. I mean, some of it is just, you know, the poor production values of the time. I mean, the sequence of Sam Waterston climbing up the mountain is a little bit Thunderbirds, because yeah. it's clearly a model. And others are just a bit silly. There's a moment where Caulfield's car has been tampered with, which again is never really explained, and he, his brakes don't work, and he, the car starts rapidly accelerating, at which point it cuts to a camera mounted on the bonnet of his car, and it goes into fast motion. And it is like you've wandered into the opening credits of Nathan <laughs> Guy, you know, da -da 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 -da, that sort of thing. 
In terms of the performances, you no, know, Gould's a pretty decent actor. I mean, many people will know him better from Grumpy Old Men, actually, and there's a wonderful bit in the Christmas special of Grumpy Old Men where he rants against Christmas cards, and in many ways, Grumpy Old Men's his finest hour. I don't think he has the charisma or the likability to carry the film in its quieter moments. I mean, but he's you know, a pretty decent leading man. O.J. Simpson, there's some, I mean, there's... He is a bit stilted, but he's better than, you know, a couple of other sporting stars who were making their debuts around that time. I mean, there's an argument that if you want to get sportsmen going into films, the best thing to do is to put them in a supporting role rather than doing what someone like Shaquille O'Neal did with Kazam, which is, you know, give him the film as yeah. a lead and then hope that he comes through, whereas in Kazam he didn't. Um, Sam Waterston, who is, like I say, later in The Killing Fields, he's a bit underdeveloped, but he just about gets away with it. And, you no, know, James Brolin is the only one of the astronauts that sort of really cements his part. Yeah. And I do think, you no, know, as I said when we reviewed Westworld, I think that his son is the better of the two actors, but he does come through very good, his son being Josh Brolin, of course. Yeah. Um, the film does pick up quite a bit in its final section. I mean, you no, know, you get sort of Gould uncovering the conspiracy when he finds the warehouse in the middle of the desert. And then that's when the plot thinks, okay, now we can get into gear. So it starts moving up and the tension comes forward. And it does culminate in a pretty decent sort of plane and helicopter chase. Um, there's a cameo performance by Telly Savalas, who um, people of your generation would know better as Kojak. I certainly do. Who yes. loves your baby. Yes. That sort of thing. So he plays um, a crop dusting pilot who um, Elliot Gould tries to hire his plane and anyone he distrusts he calls a pervert. And uh, <laughs> there's a running joke when they're sort of flying in the plane chasing down the helicopters where Gould, because it's a two-seat biplane, and Gould's sitting in the front seat yeah. while he's piling him behind. He keeps saying, just put your goddamn head down because Elliot Gould's got the massive yeah. sort of, it's not an afro but it's massive curly hair and you know, the, the distant shots of the helicopters sort of circling over the landscape looking for the astronauts that's quite creepy and it even gets away with a sort of cheesy use of slow motion at the end because you can sort of argue that that's matching it to the use of slow motion on mars yeah. so it's cheesy but it's just about fine so to sum up it's a watchable conspiracy thriller it's got an interesting idea at its heart which is executed in a jobbing workmanlike manner not much more than that i mean it doesn't have the imagination or the creativity of all the president's men. The multiple flaws in it are, are pretty easy to overlook because the film is decent escapist fun. I mean, you could argue that, you know, because conspiracy theories are, are meant to be provocative and engaging, if something is sort of innocuous, then arguably that's its biggest failing. I wouldn't go quite so far. It's not a great serious work in the way that All the President's Men is, but it's good guilty pleasure tosh. Yes, I think that was probably about, would have been my summary of it as well. Yes. It was, uh, yes, not one that you take too seriously. Anyway, thanks very much to uh, Mick for texting in. Good morning, and uh, nice to hear from you again. I hope you like this one. We'll just fade it out at that point, otherwise we won't get to review the new films. But before we go on to the new films, let's talk about next week's cult classic. Yeah, next week I'll be dashing back from a weekend in Rothbury, sort of in and out. We'll be doing Bad Lieutenant, Abel Ferrara's audacious crime drama from the early 90s. Sounds good. With a career best performance by Harvey Keitel. Something to look forward to. Wasn't complete accident we played Kate Bush and Wuthering Heights, because that's the first of our new releases. Yeah. Well, not Kate Bush bit, but the Wuthering Heights is. Yes, although Kate Bush has got new material in the pipeline, apparently. Oh, right. So, you know, fingers crossed, at any rate. So, Wuthering Heights, a new film by Andrea Arnold, whose uh, most recent work was Fish Tank, which won a couple of um, IFTAs recently, IFTAs being the Irish Film and Television Awards right, at yeah. the Irish Film to the Baptist. Um, adaptation of the Emily Bronte novel, um, which has some controversy around it, because there, there was a documentary a few years ago about 
about the Bronte sisters, and um, the documentary very much took the view that Anne, that Emily Bronte had written a second novel, and because Charlotte was so jealous of how good Wuthering Heights was, the rumour is that Charlotte actually destroyed Emily's second novel, and she never oh, wrote right. anything again. Yeah. There's various, you know, there's not much yeah. in the way of historical evidence to back that up, but it's an interesting story, and it's certainly possible. Um, so there's been a variety of screen adaptations. The most famous is probably still the 1939 version with the screen debut of Laurence Olivier in. Yeah. Um, um, I have a soft spot for the 70s version with Timothy Dalton as Heathcliff, in which that's an interesting version because there's an implication in that that Heathcliff and Cathy are sort of illegitimate brother and sister yeah. or you know, nephew and niece or something like that. And the closest to the novel up to this point has probably been the 90s version with Juliet Binoche and Ray Fiennes because that does both the older and the younger yeah. period stuff. So the story, for those who aren't aware, it's set on a remote farmhouse on the Yorkshire Moors in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, it starts off with a man called Lockwood visiting the landlord of the farmhouse called Heathcliff, who is this strange, you know, itinerant child um, who is, you know, seemingly has no status and no background and has come to sort of run this house. The, the house is filled with strange inhabitants. One room in which Lockwood stays is filled with strange objects and writing on the wall, kind of looking sort of quite yeah. mad, which belonged to this girl called Catherine, or Cathy as she's known. It then flashes back to Heathcliff's childhood as he turns into a young adult and develops a relationship with Cathy, who is torn between him and the sort of more boring more status-driven option of her other lover. It's a very bold adaptation. I mean, we mentioned Jane Eyre at the start because of, you know, the fact that that's showing yeah. locally. And one of the things that Kerry Fukunara did with that adaptation was to strip it completely of all the sort of the ripe, romping gothic touches which have become synonymous with period drama and that was very stripped back very washed out and it, it was understated yeah. and this does something similar i mean it, it does take things right back to the dark creepy heart of bronte's story which is that it's a story about madness and about grief and um betrayal to a large extent i mean the novel's very long and very sort of multi-layered it's difficult to follow in places but there is that at the heart of it it's very stark and deeply atmospheric andrea arnold's you know, sort of motif is shooting in four by three rather than widescreen yeah. so you feel like everything's everything's clammy and hemmed in and it's you oh, there was something that mark kermode said when he was reviewing it the other day saying after watching it you'll want to wrap yourself in a blanket and that's a good <laughs> thing so I don't think all of it hangs together. No, the stuff when it's the older Heathcliff reminiscing about yeah. the older Cathy, I don't think that quite works. But all the stuff in the early section when it's sort of, um, you know, Heathcliff coming to Wuthering Heights and the relationship kicking off and there's a wonderful moment in the trailer where Cathy says, you know, you, you've killed me. What have you done to me? That sort of thing. Yeah. I think that it does, it does work on that sort of emotionally wrenching level, even if it's not a completely accurate adaptation. Right, so it sounds worth going to see. It is. The Tyneside are going to be showing it, I think, from this week. Right, so not going on mainstream release then? I think it is, but, um, no, given the choice, you'd go to the Tyneside. And that's not product placement, it's just a better cinema. Indeed, indeed. Right, some Johnny Depp next. Uh, the Rum Diary. Now, I've been waiting for this for ages and ages, because it's the new film by Bruce Robinson, who's the guy who made With Nell and I. Um, which, if you go back to the early podcast, is one of the first films Paul and I talked about, I think, in earlier this year. It's his first film in 19 years. Um, so it's been a long time coming, based on a novel by Hunter Thompson, which was written in the late 60s, but was unpublished for just under 40 years. The story goes that Johnny Depp, who was a close friend of Hunter S. Thompson and, of course, played him in Terry Gilliam's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, came across the script, sorry, came across the, the book, obtained the rights, and approached Robinson to write the script, because Robinson 
you know, regards himself primarily as a screenwriter, um, and eventually convinced him to direct, basically having it on its own terms. Depp said, because Robertson had such a bad experience working in Hollywood on Jennifer A, which said, I don't want to do anything else after that. Depp said, basically, well, I'll get all my friends, I know all the technicians that I know, all the cinematographers that I know, so it'll be on your own terms, and it'll be no skin, no yeah. skin off your nose if it goes horribly wrong. So the story is, it follows a budding journalist called Paul Kemp, played by Johnny Depp, who is the stand-in for Hunter S. Thompson, because, you know, being a gonzo journalist, he would always be at the centre of his own stories. Yeah. Set in Eisenhower-era America, so late 50s, early 60s, and he is a, a journalist who is struggling to get published. He answers an ad to go to Puerto Rico, which is, of course, owned by the United States, technically, uh, and write for a paper called the San Juan Star, where he develops a taste for rum and a very attractive woman, played by Amber Heard, who was in John Carpenter's The Ward earlier yeah. last year. It's very, very hard to put the work of Hunter Thompson on screen because he was, you know, a very complex and conflicted individual, you know, as someone who, uh, you know, was this sort of freedom-loving peacenik who also yeah. was obsessed with firearms, someone who thought Nixon was the devil, but when he got into a limo with him, had a 90-minute talk about sport. You know, he was very hard to put down. Yeah. And his style is so unique that it's very difficult for someone to sort of imitate it. So it is testament to Robinson's abilities as a screenwriter that he's managed to effectively capture the Thompsonian tone, even while he had to throw out a lot of the book. I mean, bear in mind, of course, that Robinson first came to people's attention when he was Oscar-nominated for his work on The Killing Fields, and in many ways the screenplay is the best thing about Roland Joffrey's film, apart from yeah. the fact that it's quite visually poetic. Um, like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the story is very difficult to get a handle on because a lot of it is essentially sort of drunken binges and hallucinogenic, you know, expert um, expeditions. It does take a time to get into the zone, <laughs> and there is the implication, of course, that because Thompson was writing this when he hadn't quite mastered the gonzo craft, it's not supposed to be a fully rounded effort, in the same way that Withnell isn't completely rounded. I don't think it's up there with Withnell and I, but it's good slightly ropey fun and it's good to see bruce robinson back it's mixed reviews though isn't there yeah i mean bear in mind of course that fear and loathing divided people when it came out and that's been gradually rehabilitated so it might be this will just take a couple of years to bed in in the same way of course that people hated with now first time round. right our next film cracking castleist uh john hurt who never do wrong in my eyes and uh, mickey rook but doesn't sound as if, or at least the critics think this one's quite worked. Yeah, it's his uh, Immortals. One of the problems is that John Hurt isn't in it very much. I mean, he does work and work and work, and he does have a habit of turning up in bad stuff in which he's the best thing, a bit like Ewan McGregor does. So it's a new film by Tarsam Singh, who is most, most famous for directing The Cell. Have you seen The Cell with Jennifer Lopez? About ten years ago? No, I don't think no, so. No, not a very good, but no, perfectly forgettable psychological thriller in which she goes inside the mind of one of her patients. And, yeah. You know, just typical Jennifer Lopez stuff of her being a diva and not being very interesting. Uh, it's based loosely, very, very, very loosely, on the Titan mythology of ancient Greece, sent after the uh, sent after what is known as the the Titanomachy, which is where the Titans battle the Olympians for control of the Earth. Yeah. And uh, you have one of the last of the Titans called Hyperion, played by Mickey Rourke, who declares war on humanity in the search for this thing called the Epirus Bow, which will free the rest of their titans from their hidden prison, and it's up to Theseus, played by Henry Cavill, to fight for humanity and for the future of the gods, because, of course, Theseus is the son of Zeus or something along those lines. Put simply, it's garbage. Um, it doesn't do justice to the Greek mythology in the way that the, Harry, the Ray Harryhausen films did yeah. in the early 80s, you know, Clash of the Titans or Jason of the Argonauts with the great stop-motion skeleton soldiers, which is still quite creepy. Um, the performances are terrible. Mickey Rourke is, you know, having gone through, you know, the wrestler and, and sort of, you know, getting himself right back on track, he is straight back down to things, you know, and... He's just, you no know, the mumbling worst. You, you, you think back to the time in the 90s when he was doing things like Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, a film in which the yeah. 
product placement was so bad it was actually a <laughs> title. And uh, Henry Cavill's wooden Frida Pinto, who you know, a few years ago was in Slumdog Millionaire, she's just given nothing to deal with. The violence of the film is completely unwarranted. I mean, at least the remake of Clash of the Titans was a 12, so it was sort of, even if it was rubbish, it hit its target audience, whereas this was trimmed to get a 15, because it has sort of people's yeah. throats being cut and so okay. forth. Yes, not the sort of thing you want. The 3D is pointless. If you can wait that long, then there's a sequel to Clash of the Titans coming out called Wrath of the Titans. That'll be out next, sort of March, April time. And that will probably be rubbish, but not quite as rubbish as this. Okay. Crimbo's coming. First of the holiday films, and this one looks like a cracker. Um, latest, so it's Arthur Christmas in 3 or 2D. Um, latest from Ardman Animations, it's from their Digimation end, so it's closer to their their short-lived relationship with DreamWorks on Flushed Way rather than the Wallace and Gromit stuff, which is all claimed. Another who's who for the voiceovers, isn't it? Yeah. It's an amazing, uh, I mean, it seems to be the thing to do now for, uh, for established actors and actresses is to go and do voiceovers on animations, isn't it? We've got Hugh Laurie, Bill Nighy, Imelda Staunton, Jim mm -hmm. Broadbent. This is good. Yeah, it's, it's got a pretty good cast list. So the story is, it's set at the North Pole and it asks the age-old question, you know, how can Father Christmas deliver every kid's present in one night? And Father Christmas is a approaching retirement he's got two sons one's called steve played by hugh laurie who wants to run everything like a military operation and it's got sort of black ops jets with sort of the sky painted on the bottom so you can't see it and so forth the other is called arthur played by james mcavoy who's sort of the sort of the more soppy one who gets yeah. all sort of dewy-eyed when they reads all the kids letters and one christmas he discovers that one child's present hasn't been delivered and steve says oh it's just no it's a, a, a minuscule error it doesn't really matter but he's saying look we've got to actually help this kid so it's the classic thing if you know bringing in the spirit of Christmas and what's it all yeah. about and so forth while yeah frankly it's a little bit depressing that we have the first Christmas movie coming out in the sort of what first second weekend in November well it's got as far as November yes but it's still far too early I mean yeah, in Britain always starts Christmas early I mean the thing in the States of course they don't start Christmas until after Thanksgiving and the yeah. day after Thanksgiving which is public holiday over there is what the last Friday in November everybody goes and does their Christmas shopping and the shops are the places to avoid but it's at least it doesn't start until what 25th 26th something like that of November yeah over here here it's sort of starting back in august isn't it yes but it's, it's just done well to survive well yes but you just you yes. just don't need two yes. months to do a yes. week's worth of shopping yes. but we have no christmas music here on lionheart radio until the first of december yeah and i'm not, I'm not that's I'm, our uh, that is our uh, our golden cutoff. Cut yeah, I mean, I'm trying not to be a Scrooge because I love Christmas, but just it's it's getting in far too early. I mean, this sort of trend started off a couple of years ago when um, Robert Zemeckis' version of A Christmas Carol was released in the first weekend in November, and you know, yeah. the idea being that if you release it early enough it stays around in cinemas long enough for it to sort of take yeah. a steady amount of money, which is actually quite an old-fashioned way of doing it. I mean, it still opened everywhere on that date, so yeah. it was you know, still doing for the opening weekend, but it was sort of, let's have this as a sleeper hit, yeah. and so forth, and that did take money. Um, I've no doubt that there is stuff in here that young children will enjoy. I don't think it's up there with Curse of the Railway or any of the Wallace and Gromit shorts that often turn up on TV at Christmas, including the most recent one, um, A Matter of Loaf and Death, which I thought was very funny. Um, it does feel more generic, and no, anything no, with the words Ardman and generic in is not that good. So it's, it's good fun, and it, it'll, it's, you know, like I say, young children will enjoy it, but unlike most Ardman stuff, it is sort of in one ear and out the other. But huge critical acclaim. Yeah, so. it's, like I say, it's perfectly fine. I don't want to come across as like yes. a Scrooge, but just don't go in expecting Curse of the Were Rabbit because it's not. Okay, next one on our list is uh, The Awakening. Uh, debut film by Nick Murphy, uh, starring Rebecca Hall, who is most famous for um, her supporting performance in Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. Have you seen The Prestige? Uh, no. 
great film. Right. One of Christopher Nolan's very best. You need to see it. Um, it's billed as a skeptical ghost story. It's set in 1921 um, in England. It's still reading from the effects of World War I. Rebecca Hall is a professional skeptic who has made a living out of debunking attempts to contact the dead. She's called to a school where a boy has seemingly died of fright. And uh, no, there's rumours of a boy with a twisted face roaming the school's corridors at night, and she goes to investigate, and she, is, she builds up a relationship with uh, the headmistress, played by Imelda Stoughton, who, of course, plays a headmistress in... Who can do no wrong. ...in Harry Potter and the Indeed. Order of Phoenix. And she's she very is one of the highlights. She yes. is very formidable in that film. Um, it's a pretty interesting little ghost story. I mean, it does owe a fair amount to things like The Haunting, the Robert Wise film from the 60s, yeah. and more recently, things like The Others and The Orphanage. And in the, in the case of The Others, very much, because that had a post-war setting you know, on the Channel Islands just after World yeah. War Two, and you, you get the sense of a culture which is in exhaustion and just reeling from just the horror that's been wrought. And there are also passing resemblances to the work of Guillermo del Toro, particularly his ghost story, The Devil's Backbone, which is very, very creepy. It's you know, well-directed with a spooky atmosphere. It taps into the idea of you know, someone going around debunking ghosts, but the point is they're the ones who actually want to connect with the intangible, and there's no... This ties into the whole thing going... set in the 1920s of sort of Harry Houdini going around debunking all the frauds. Yeah. And, of course, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was you know, slightly before this, but he dedicated the last 15, 20 years of his life to believing in fairies and trying <laughs> to contact his dead son after he was killed in, in a war. Um, great performance by Rebecca Hall, and I do think Imelda Staunton is formidable as ever. It's not groundbreaking and the final twist is a little bit fanciful, but it's good, solid, old-fashioned, creepy ghost story. Good. And our final one this week is Trespass. New film by Joel Schumacher. Yes, he's back. Um, the guy who, you know, in the 1980s was half decent, gave us things like The Lost Boys with Kiefer Sutherland. Then you go into the 90s and... Uh, Flatliners and Falling Down with Michael Douglas, which was famously parodied by Vic and Bob and done there very well. Most famous, of course, for giving this, um, the sort of the weaker Batman films. Batman Forever, which is, um, sort of loud and incoherent, but okay. And then Batman and Robin, which is often voted the worst film of all time. For the record, it's rubbish, but it's not as bad as Titanic the Animated Musical. Um, so it's a home invasion movie in which Nicolas Cage and Nicole Kidman are a couple. He's a wealthy diamond dealer and they live in a big house. Um, they have a dysfunctional daughter played by Liana Liberato. One night, burglars break in their house, masquerading as police. So it's a little bit clockwork orange already, because yeah. of course that sequence where you know it's a matter of life and death, and they break in with the noses. Uh, and you no, know, so the burglars come in, they try and steal all the money, and bad stuff happens. It's already tanked at the U.S. box office because it cost thirty-five million and has taken so far twenty-four thousand. Which that is, is not good. That is not good at all. I mean, bear in mind Schumacher's last film called Twelve went straight to DVD, so he's been off the boil for quite some time insofar as he's ever on the boil. It's massively derivative. I mean, the home invasion genre, the, the definitive text for all of these is Michael Haneke's Funny Games, which he made in uh, sort of German and then remade in English with Naomi Watts, and that was, that was a film which very much sort of looked at its audience from a lecturing point of view, saying, all this violence is going, but why are you watching it? Why are you watching it? Why are you watching it? And since then, we've had things like, you know, um, Cherry Tree Lane, and there's hints in this even of something like David Fincher's Panic Room with Jodie Foster, which, you know, she, she yeah. plays a mother with her young daughter. Their herbs, they get stuck in the panic room when their house is burgled and then it's, the, the power struggle goes on. It's, so it's massively derivative. It doesn't have the strength of its convictions. You know, it's one ridiculous twist after the other. It's trying to be sort of sleuth with hard edges. Not that sleuth didn't have hard edges in itself, <laughs> but no. It's, yeah. it's got a nasty, grimy aesthetic, and it's, it's even as late-night DVD viewing, it just leaves you rather empty and cold. And the consensus comment on Rotten Tomatoes, nasty and aggressive, more unpleasant than entertaining, which just about agrees with you. Yes, it does. No, Schumacher yes. has, is just style, 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 yes. and a bit more style, and nothing so between his ears. film of the week? 
Uh, joint between uh, Wuthering Heights and The Rum Diary. Wuthering Heights is the better film, but any but any way that Bruce Robinson makes money is a good film by me. Great. And you're back next Thursday, are you? Uh, no, I'm away this Thursday because right. I'm uh, I'm on a course. But well, we'll see you next Saturday. You will. Yes. We shall do Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant. And have a good week and enjoy Rothbury. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.